and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're chatting to Emily Pine, author of essay collection Notes to Self. We discuss why it's important to write for yourself rather than a perceived audience, creativity as a therapeutic tool, and why if you want to be a writer, you need to put it first. When I left home at 20, I could sense my life opening and a new separation beginning. On the shelves of the kitchen in my student flat, I piled up two saucepans and one frying pan. I stacked two plates and two bowls. I laid out four forks and two knives and four spoons. A chopping board and two mugs completed the setup. I looked at all this equipment and I felt both ready and completely unprepared for what came next. Life beyond my parents. I wanted that life and yet was also terrified of it. I wanted the freedom of feelings that did not involve them, though I was also overwhelmed by the shape and scale of those feelings. Who was I, really, without the defining boundary of my family? What stories should I tell now? My parents separated when I was five and my sister was a baby. Though I am a long way from the difficulties of my childhood, I still dwell on the stories of those years, hoping that they might explain the troubling residues of so many feelings and thoughts and actions. My parents did not speak. My father suffered from depression. I was a lonesome child. Those facts and all the accompanying stories whirl around. I write them down. Perhaps they will be less overbearing that way, pinned in one place. As I step away from the page and I look at what I have written about myself and my family, this family, our family, I see that in the end it is always going to be both a complicated and a simple story. In this story, which I may never stop telling, I try to remember what it was like for me as a child and what I did and what I could have done differently. I try to imagine what it was like for my parents and what they did and what they could have done differently. I remember us happy and I remember us sad. I remember us divided and I remember us together. I remember everything and I remember only fragments of a whole that will always be beyond me. Hi Emily, thank you so much for joining us on the Riff Raff podcast all the way from Ireland. Um, thank you for joining me. Um, please can you start by telling us a little about your essay collection Notes to Self. Yeah, Notes to Self began uh, in 2013 um, because my dad, who's been an alcoholic all my life, went into liver failure. And just to complicate matters, he lives in Greece. Uh, So we spent a year, my sister and I, uh, going in. He was in and out of intensive care uh, and and trying to look after him, trying to save him. And uh, there were lots of conflicting emotions around this because, as I said, he'd been an alcoholic and that is a kind of very, very destructive thing to have within a family. The happy ending is that he lived and he made he's no longer on the liver transplant list and uh, he's not drinking anymore either. Um, but afterwards, kind of when it got to 2014 and 2015, I started thinking about... I need to get this. I need to get this out of my head, uh, and I and I wrote it down. And I really wrote it just for myself. I didn't imagine anybody else reading it. Um, but then my partner found it and said, "You know, this is really good as a piece of writing, and you should." I think other people might find it helpful to read how you talk about uh, alcohol and family and so on. And uh, so I brought it to Tramp Press. 
um, who don't publish nonfiction. <laughs> they said, we don't publish nonfiction. I said, I know. <laughs> um, but would, would you give me an honest opinion on whether you think it's any good? And they said they would. And several months later, they got back and they said, would you write a book about this? And I said, but you don't publish nonfiction. And they said, I know. <laughs> but uh, they, they decided to break the rules. Um, and they saw it as, as really the an opportunity in in the Irish context to tune into what's happening so much for women writing in the non-fiction genre. And particularly, we've seen so many American women writing collections of essays from Leslie Jameson to Roxane Gay to Rebecca Solnit, writers who I would aspire to be in the same category as. And Trump really wanted to do that kind of thing in Ireland. And so they said, would you write a whole collection about all the things that women don't normally get a chance to say? And I that was just permission to go and write about all the things we normally keep quiet about or sanitize or uh, just hide from public view. And so I wrote about not just my dad, but also then uh, my recent miscarriage and my and acknowledging my inability to have children and then things like, you know, the chaos that I had to deal with on a daily basis at work, because I think that we don't talk about our lives as working women enough. We talk about juggling and having it all, but actually what is it like on a day-to-day basis to go to work and, and deal with that? And then I wrote about my, my parents and say in the middle of something and other crimes about periods and body hair. Yeah. And it's it's that that makes it so powerful because it's like you said, these are things that women just aren't talking about that we or that we will talk about, but in you know behind closed doors with our closest friends, and we never feel that you know it's so difficult to express, like you say, conflicting emotions. And there's so much to choose from. How did you work out? I mean, you've mentioned some very personal things that happened to you that you wanted to explore. But in the panoply of sort of women's experience, how did you narrow it down to X amount of topics to cover? Uh, in a really basic way, I was on a bus and I uh, had the back of my bus ticket and I wrote down five ideas and those became the other five, five essays. Um, and they are based around stories. So they are personal essays. They are not the kind of political or wide ranging. I'm not trying to write about women in general, really trying to write as specifically and as you said honestly and openly as I can about my own life um, and and what I've found since it's been published is so many people have then got in touch with me and said I read uh, your book and this particular you know sometimes one particular essay means something to them um, and then they and they usually email me and uh, then they tell me their stories and that's been incredible as a way of thinking about how maybe the most feminist thing we can do is to tell our own stories and then to listen to other people's. Uh, so I see the publication of the book as really important for me personally, but also as a way of, of, of opening things up. I mean, it's funny, the footnote to that is that people have described the book, in, certainly in Ireland as well, about as breaking the silence. And it's not the first book to do that. You know, we, it just makes you realize how big the silence is that we have to keep breaking it and keep telling our stories. So it is the personal is political kind of yet again. Yeah. And what the thing that like took my breath away about it was just, was how honest it is and how frank it is. And it's, it's incredibly brave and uncompromising and it just is exactly what the world needs to be reading right now and um you I read that you found it obviously very painful to write but you decided to write what made you feel 
the it was it was the most vulnerable thing that you could think to do. So and I, I salute that massively. Um, so this must have been like a huge process. You know, you don't just sit down and you know, you can't just possibly sit down and be able to write with that kind of honesty and humour and realness. Like that must have been quite a process. And I wondered if you would mind letting us in on that. Yeah, delighted. I mean, it, I see it as a kind of two-part process. Uh, I wrote it as in the, the first draft of it very, very fast. I felt actually, and I'm quite, when I hear other writers say this, I'm quite suspicious of it, you know, I think, oh, really. Um, but it kind of poured out of me. And I feel like that it, there's a dam, you know, there's a wall that we build where we don't talk about our feelings and uh, or, or, you know, very intimate private things that have happened to us and then that dam kind of breaks and it all kind of comes pouring out. When I say it's a two-stage process, I had then a lot, the book was a lot longer in its first draft form. Um, and for me, I spent as much time editing and rewriting as I spent writing the first draft. And that was really important and Trump gave me the space to do that and they gave lots of important kind of edits as well. And um, my partner read it and was an incredible reader and editor and, and ruthless, brave enough to say to me, okay, you don't actually need two anecdotes about, you know, getting your period in a public place <laughs> and bleeding all over the place. Um, and uh, that was a consultant. <laughs> I, know, I know, I have loads. <laughs> um, and it, but that was what I wanted was you know to refine it so that actually I was only saying things I really meant and that I really cared about and that caught exactly what I what I intended and um, sometimes I think in life writing things can get kind of anecdotal and I wanted to pull back from that and have a kind of very clean narrative and it's it's striking it's a collection of six essays with six really big topics and each, so each essay is doing a lot of work within that and I and I think there are there was an opportunity and people have said to me subsequently, would, you t would I turn one of the essays into a book? Uh, and actually, it's why I like the essay form. I like the shortness. I like the intensity of it. Other people are really good at writing the long narrative in, in, in whole book form, but I just like the punchiness of an essay, you know, it just, and the, and the readability of it. You can read them quite fast. I find them very good for, you know, my commute. Uh, I love reading other people's essays, uh, you know, just when I'm on the bus. Yeah, I think it really underlines as well. And, uh, you know, I want to be conscious that men go through, you know, lots of different things and experiences in their life. And even saying that is a massive generalization. But I think, it, you know, the fact that these six topics are relevant to so many women and you felt that, you know, you had to address each one. And so, you know, each one demanded an essay. And I think it really underscores just how many things women are dealing with very quietly at the same time and I think that the essay format like lends itself to that so well as well um, yeah it does and you mentioned contradictory emotions right and you know I sometimes felt like I was taking the risk of being unlikable by admitting to all the kind of you know there's that internal narrative which you're not which we're not always proud of which is often kind of critical of not just ourselves but also of other people and constantly judging ourselves and also judging other people and so I wanted to risk doing that but again I like the essay format for being able to hold all of those things and as a writer it was important to when I was right when I was writing the final version to have moments where I would step back in the narrative and say, is this how I really feel? How do, how do I remember this? Is this skewed? Um, and to take ownership and um, the 
when when I was writing about having having been raped as a teenager, and that for me was the hardest uh, episode to write about because I'd never told anybody ever before. And when I when I wrote the first draft of it, I actually came downstairs to my boyfriend and said, "I just need to read this to you." And I read it to him. That was the first time that I'd actually described it to him. So again, writing was a kind of way for me to own it. And I think that that's the the flip side of being vulnerable is that through kind of being creative and through deciding on the narrative yourself, you get to take power or take control of that narrative. It's still a shitty narrative, right? <laughs> you know, it, we don't cure stuff through it, but at least you get to decide what words you want to use about it. Absolutely. And I, I, like, I love the, again, talking about the essay form, like it allows you to explore the emotions that you are feeling, but also the emotions that you feel like you should be feeling and, you know, and that's and that yeah, it's the it's so digestible and so relatable and yeah, it felt. I feel like I'll I'll return to it again and again. I found it yeah very incredible. I'm so curious as well. Did when you mentioned that lots of different people said you should turn this essay into a book, did everyone pick the same <laughs> essay or did I just imagine everyone coming and saying number one that needs to be the book and then you know a whole other people you know set of people just being like no number six. And um, the a lot of people, I mean, uh, and and this is a, a kind of generalization because people find different things um, kind of that they connect with in the book. Um, but the the top <laughs> the top scorer in that category has to be the second essay, which is called "From the Baby Years," which is about the four years that um, we spent trying to have a baby and um, and the miscarriage and all of the tests and all of the things that you go through and so on and. I think, you know, we in Ireland we had very recently had a constitutional referendum to make abortion um, legal in this country for the first time um, since, well, forever. And uh, so it kind of it feels like it chimes with that. And uh, but also I think there's there are so there is still this silence around uh, miscarriage and stillbirth and infertility and this narrative the narrative of feminism is often a narrative of kind of feminism and empowerment and sometimes when you're going through those things you don't feel very empowered or and in fact actually you feel like a total failure and I I think if I if I were to develop one of the essays further it would be that and to talk to other women about their experiences both experiences of infertility but also of childbirth of working within the child like childbirth sector as it were because it is a bit of an industry if you think of the IVF and um, and so on and thinking about how maternity hospitals you know relate to the people who go through them and so on so I think motherhood and non-motherhood uh, are huge issues that have that so many people have got in touch with me and both people I know and so many people I've never met before and I only now know and I know the most incredible things about them I mean I was at an event the other day an academic event and uh, we were talking about something academic and the woman standing next to me who I'd never met before in there was a lull in conversation and, and and she just turned to me and said I had a miscarriage two months ago and then turned back to the conversation and we continued this academic and I had there was no moment like there was no space for me to say I'm so sorry like can you tell me more it was just this kind of 
I need to tell someone that this happened. And I think that speaks to me of there, there need to be so much more spaces, many more spaces about around maternity and non-maternity. And also, you know, paternity and, and non-paternity. Um, you know, the idea that women own childbirth or own the issue of children, I see time and time again, and that's really problematic in terms of how we're talking about it, but also having, you know. We're, we're actually recording this in baby loss awareness week and whilst that is obviously very it's very timely I think we could be recording this in any week and it still be incredibly apt so just to reiterate yeah. what Amy said earlier you know thank you so much for bringing these topics up. Well thank you I mean part of the reason I wanted to as well was my sister who is not a writer and um, she had her baby daughter was stillborn and one of the things that she found so incredibly difficult about it other, apart from the sense of loss um, was and uh, grief was the silence that descended and I know why like nobody knows what to say right because it's such a horrific loss it's such a terrible thing to happen but that silence was so hard for her to live within and again like you say it's about awareness and uh, and, and telling stories as a way of of realizing that we can connect about the things that, that we've lost or that we grieve yeah and oh and the problem with the the silence is that people think that then, then they feel like there's something wrong with them because they don't know the stats on how many people happens to and how and so you know and then they feel like they they can't say anything it's it's like a something that's wrong with them and that and that's the yeah. worst thing they can be possibly feeling at that time so yeah yeah, yeah. um oh you're, you're yes nice. yeah. um, so one of um obviously you mentioned your dad right at the top yeah. of this and then your sister of course writing about real people and in non-fiction is a is a a lot of writers find that a very thorny path to navigate yeah. I wonder how you found that and what the reception from your family has been. I'm incredibly lucky in my family. They've been really supportive. Um, I won't say that it hasn't been without its angsty moments. Um, it absolutely has. I think one of the things I was determined to do, which is very, very difficult to do, so I probably fail multiple occasions, is to not tell anybody else's story but to really only tell mine. Obviously, my life intersects with theirs, so I've had to, as I put it in the book, I've had to trespass on their stories, um, but they've been really generous in allowing me to do that. It was important to me, they read it, each of the essays in first draft as I wrote them. Um, partly for corrections, like my sister was able to correct various things that I had, that I had misremembered. Um, then there were times where I remembered something and say my father remembered something and I said, well, you know, you were semi-conscious in a hospital bed. Whose memory is more reliable? So, in fact, actually that became part of the narrative about how we remember things differently. Um, and there were, you know, it was it was difficult for them. It, and I think everybody, we were all really, really nervous before it became, before it became public. Um, because we were afraid of what might of how people might respond, and we've seen so many cases of women talking about their lives publicly and being trolled or receiving really really bad um, responses. And it's been the opposite for me. Um, apart from a few total jerks, um, I've had amazing kind of level of support. And I think you know when I when I was talking about publishing the book, my mum said I can understand why you would want to write it, but I don't understand why you would want to publish it. And actually the response to the book has been the answer to that question, um, which is about saying let's make this public and let's, let's talk a lot. So it's not about my life, because my life is not in any way extraordinary. It's actually about the ordinariness of women's experience and finding, finding interest in those small, small and unique details. 
and you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, you know, you've you've spoken about the the fact that you um, you wrote fit, when you were writing things the first time. It was kind of the first time that you'd address them, and um, yeah. I, so it sounds to me like you know parts of it maybe were therapeutic. And I wondered if if that was part of the pro if it if it did end up being you know if that it did end up helping. It's funny because I'm smiling at this point because, um, yeah, I my academic job is I work on memory studies and I have often written, oh, this is very therapeutic or cathartic for, you know, life writers to do this. It actually doesn't really feel like that when you're doing it yourself. Um, I would say two things. I think creativity is therapeutic in itself. So I think writing something down feels empowering, like I say, said earlier about kind of owning the narrative. Um, but in order to own the narrative, you have to open up the boxes that you had sealed your emotions and experiences in and, and, and also to kind of confront some of the still conflicting emotions that come with that. And actually, it was, has been much easier for me over the past 25 years to act as if I had never been raped. And to not own that as part of my experience and to actually just be like, I'm a strong, powerful feminist woman. Whereas then you kind of say, oh, you know, to admit to uh, somebody having been violent against you is actually to kind of to make that a reality. Uh, so I think the writing process is both empowering, but also, as I said, very vulnerable. I, I, but I think that's how you make it good. You know, we all know that the books that we love and that we return to time and again are the ones where writers are taking a risk and opening themselves up and being real on the page. And the ones, you know, the ones that you kind of, that are being abstract or whatever are much harder to connect with them in that way. And so I just thought, you know, people say, oh, you know, you're, you're being so brave. And I thought, God, if I had thought I was being brave, I never would have done it. Um, but also, I don't see any other option. Like, write it or don't write it, but write the whole story if you're going to write it or else don't. People would very much see through it if you weren't, if you were writing it to sort of like to portray a certain thing, you know, like it would, it, and that's what. You, you know, you, there's there's not even an element of that. Like everything, and the, your tone, the humour, the just the real human experience is that is what it is from start to finish. So um, yeah, I think I think you're right. It is the vulnerability that is so key, and also it's, it is that's what I like reading about. Mm. You know, that's what connects, yeah. what connects people. So, um, do you have any kind of particular tips for people, like in terms of writing about writing honestly? I mean, that, that was that was kind of a good tip, but if you have any more. <laughs> well, you know, I guess I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm discovering the rules as I go and kind of breaking some and making some up. I guess I would say write for yourself. That is part of the point of the title of the book, Notes to Self. It really does feel like don't don't be writing for an imagined audience because then you will shape your narrative in ways to please them or to meet their expectations and actually that's I think quite destructive. I found writing longhand like on paper with a pen, uh, really, really helpful as a way of not thinking about what word I was using or correcting it. I think when I write on screen, I edit, every, you know, then I typed everything up and I edit everything on screen. But I think the critical faculty comes into play really strongly when you're seeing words on a in a word file. And um, when you're writing longhand, part, especially if you have handwriting that is as bad as mine, um, it's it's much easier, I think, to keep moving with the narrative and to to keep writing. And sometimes I would write 
the same memory or the same episode a couple of different times. And I would always, when I went back to it, it was always the first version that I ended up using. That was always freshest and it always had something. Whereas in the second or third version, I was trying to craft it. Now craft is incredibly important. It's what we do. This is not my diary that, you know, I am publishing in the world. It is a highly edited, polished piece of work. That's why I'm quite proud of it as a piece of writing. But I do think the the sense of... Um, of there being some kind of visceral emotion in it comes through with with having a f- kind of allowing your first draft to just flow. And then the other thing is the same rule for any writer doing any kind of writing. Do it first. It won't get done if it's the last thing on your to-do list. I've wanted to be a writer since I was, you know, tiny. And as an academic, I have managed to be a writer, but actually, in terms of the kind of creative writing, and nonfiction is still creative, in terms of creative writing, I just, I didn't make any space for it in my life, you know, I did the sensible thing of getting a job, and then, you know, a mortgage, and then life, and so on, and and now I think, I see, oh, okay, you get to, I have permission to write, and to write creatively, so I do it first thing in the day, and again, maybe, maybe doing it first thing in the day before you've checked your email allows you to just be a little bit freer, um, in terms of how you write. All great tips. Great Thank tips you very much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously a lot of the themes that we've touched on, you know, they are very traumatic to be revisiting and to be writing. Do you have any advice for writers to practice a little bit of self-care, even for writers who aren't necessarily tackling traumatic events? Just, you know, the writing process can be arduous. It can be lonely. It can be excruciating at times. Did you pr- make sure that you made space for yourself to kind of step back, come back I'm to like the present? I'm like the worst at self-care ever. <laughs> well, you're right about like, that. Yeah. Basically, I mean, the whole last essay is about how terrible I am at that stuff. And I wish I could say I'm brilliant now. But I did do yoga this morning, I have to say. So, you know, living my best life. Um, I, you know, it's the normal stuff. Uh, it's it's not not living in your head exclusively, which I think a lot of people who are drawn towards writing tend to do. Um, we have a this voice in our head that you know whether, I mean, in term, I don't mean in the mental health way. I mean, this voice in our head that you're constantly in dialogue with, and uh, it, it's good to externalize that, whether that's on the page and then showing it to someone else and get, you know, someone you trust, obviously, and who can say well done and be a champion for you. Um, or just, you know, having a conversation over a cup of tea with another person. Um, I think in thinking about things, I realized that the worst thing I did was assuming that silence was the most appropriate thing or, you know, I, did, I shouldn't bother other people with my feelings or emotions. People really actually like to be, not bothered, but like to have conversations that are are real connections and then you can listen to them in return. So I think, yeah, not living in your head is the best the best thing to do. Don't be like me. <laughs> so much easier said than done. I do, yeah. <laughs> And that kind of leads into the next question, which I have. Um, you know, like when Rosie and I both wrote um, narrative nonfiction as our first books as well, and you know, it's it's so important to work out kind of like how how the tone the tone of the book. You know, like you yeah. want it, you want to because it, because it is kind of a battle between how you speak and how you present yourself to the world in that way, but also how you write. And you know, you it's 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 a fine balance to convey that as a merger kind of thing and I wondered um because you obviously you obviously use quite a lot of humor and it and it does feel like um the kind of super intelligence with which you speak also comes through in your writing and I wondered how you 
whether whether that was just kind of how you've always written or whether there was kind of a real process to get to kind of that voice that tone of voice um, the tone is a really interesting question. And um, when I when I was a teenager, I was kind of classic wild child. You know, went to nightclubs and like got drunk and did all the things that you shouldn't do. And uh, and I had always I had told partial bits of those stories for years as kind of funny anecdotes. And uh, that you know you know getting locked in a nightclub and and you know setting off all the alarms at six a.m. and you know kind of backstage passes all of that kind of stuff. So when I sat down to write about it, I ended up writing with that funny anecdote tone. Um, and then I showed it to my partner and he said, there's a problem here, Emily, and it's not funny. The stuff, as soon as you put it down on the page, when you tell it, you know, in the pub, you know, over a couple of pints, it's kind of like, ha ha. Um, but when you write it all down, actually, what you see is a 14 year old who's completely lost and who is being physically and emotionally abused um, by older adults around her. And so I had to very much changed the tone for that essay um, and and treat it totally seriously and that involved me changing how I felt about those years and um, and kind of rethinking that that through uh, and it was funny I was, I was I mean I think everyone in the world ha either has or should have watched Nanette by Hannah Gadsby at this point and she talks about that and I had finished the book at that stage when I saw Lynette and she talks about how we we use self-deprecating humour as a kind of a shield both for ourselves but all, mostly for other people, right, to spare other people the reality of pain. And when Gadsby talked about that, I had this real moment of going, that's exactly, that's exactly what I feel. And we do that all the time, you know, somebody asks you how you are and you say, oh, I'm fine, you know, just like drowning, but, you know, fine. And, and what you really are saying is something serious. I'm not, I'm really struggling here, but you use humor as a way of making other people feel okay and also making yourself feel like you're not actually drowning. Um, and, and it was the same for me in writing about it. Uh, yeah. And just to move a little bit away from the process now, um, you, again, we've mentioned briefly that you approached Tramp and they said, we do not publish nonfiction. And then you came back with a nonfiction book and they published it. Right. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's an awesome such a triumph. great story. Um, a lot of the authors do think about publishing either short stories or essay collections as a first book because it's it's a slightly it you know you want you can dip your toe in the water a little mm. bit you can try out some different things rather you know rather than commit to that long narrative I wonder if you could tell us a little bit how you uh, sort of explain a bit more how you came to publication what the process was like and kind of go into a bit more depth about you know what happened with Trump because I think that's god that's just interesting well, you know, they get full credit here because, you know, Lisa Cohen and Sarah Davis Goff, who co-founded Tramp um, several years ago, and they, this is the 14th book they've published, and uh, so they've been going for five years, and uh, they were the ones who saw the potential for the book, and I mean, I'm probably a terrible example of, like, to, to people who are hoping for a publishing deal, because they're like, oh, I didn't even ask for one, and uh, they were the ones who said... Um, could you turn this into a book and what would you do? And they gave me permission and space and set, and I said, well, what would it be on? They said, anything you want to say, which is quite the kind of license to be given. Yeah. And then very quickly, I wrote the second essay. Um, what I wanted to work out, and this comes back to life writing, I wanted to work out if I could do it, 
if it was something I really wanted to do. I thought my gut instinct was yes, but I thought let's let's be a bit sensible about this for once. Um, and I also wanted to check that what I would write actually worked with their vision for their for Trump as a brand. And um, so I wrote the second essay, The Baby Years, um, very quickly, and I sent them the draft, and they loved it. And on the basis of those two, they we signed a contract um, the kind of the next week. Uh, so it was an incredibly fast and intuitive and gut instinct kind of process, I think, for all of us. And uh, they like they curate their list very, very carefully. Um, and I think it, though they said though they don't publish nonfiction, and they still don't publish nonfiction there, uh, you know, as far as I know. Um, but it filled a gap in terms of what a what they were looking for as a publisher and then also what they could perceive as a gap in the Irish market and I think that is key for I mean I don't again you should never write for other people or for an expect for an audience and expectations but I do think that idea of, of, of writing something that other people aren't writing is is can be a lonely one um, but at the same time actually is providing something that other people aren't providing so to, to, to be the first is not a bad thing uh, necessarily i wonder if everyone's now going to be sending off their non-fiction books to tramp they're just going to be deluged i had i sent essays that are in the collection that have gotten amazing reviews you know in newspapers and so on as part of the collection and um, and uh I, I sent a couple of those to international essay platforms for nonfiction and essay writing and was rejected um, from them. And I'm not a name. I've never published before. I had no track record. It, you know, they, it was one per, as one editor said to me, oh, we've done pregnancy. <laughs> and so I just thought, right, okay. We've and, published uh, one and, book on pregnancy. That's it. We're done. We've, we've yeah. covered it, we reckon. We did, yeah. we did a single essay. We yeah. did a single essay on one woman who, ha- who, who went through IVF and who had a baby. And I was like, but what about the story of the person who didn't have the baby, you know? Um, so again, I think, I think, you know, it's not that everybody read my work and thought, oh, brilliant, here's a brand new voice. And Tramp read it and thought, right, if we put this together as a collection, it, together it has a heft to it and it has made a reaction. I also, you know, really lucky in terms of the book is now going to be available in translation and in other editions in other countries, which is just, I never imagined that I would get to this point and it, it feels like a kind of alchemy. Um, but without Tramp, having done that and and made it and and brought it to an Irish market it it would have none of those I would have none of those opportunities so you really realize that the um ecology of publishing is around yes okay the big presses that have international distribution and so on but actually it's about the really small presses and being able to to work from the ground up with them and that's been it's just been the most inspiring kind of working relationship of my life actually amazing there's there's, there's so there's so many exciting um smaller presses now like that we keep on coming across like it's and coming coming out with like such bringing together amazing authors in collections and just a, it seems like an exciting time for kind of the smaller presses a lot I wondered um just you know so obviously your kind of collection has the kind of um you know the idea of like it being kind of the things that aren't spoken about and I wonder whether you think that having that kind of overall theme for a collection is something that writers working on one need to have Oh, I can't dictate yeah, anyone else's theme. Course. It's going to be, you know, <laughs> I don't even know what I would set as my theme for the next book because I'm still kind of just allowing my brain to be a little bit idle. But I do think that 
a, a key question for me, and it, maybe it would work for other people, is thinking, what is it that I really want to say? Mm. And not bothering with the other stuff. But like, for, I mean, and it can be difficult to identify what is it that I really want to say? What is it that I'm, what is it someone else isn't saying? But what is it that I have to add to the debate? And um, because I think we're so often trying to be smart or, you know, get followers or likes or whatever, um, and or to kind of join in the debate as the terms are being set by other people externally, that we overlook actually what we want to say and I so what is it that you want to say is my is my burning question wonderful and finally yeah yeah you said you're being idle but <laughs> I don't know how much we believe you please say that you are working on something else I am yeah I am, actually, I am. <laughs> I'm allowing it to percolate in the background um, and you know have a day job uh, so I'm not giving that up Um I can continue the things and this is academic is uh, working to create uh, an oral archive of testimony from survivors of child abuse um, and that's with, in partnership with my university, University College Dublin and that's really important to me it makes any memories I have pale into insignificance when you talk to people about those personal histories and uh, so listening is I think what I'm doing uh, for, the, for the next foreseeable few months um, but out of out of all of the, the the process of writing notes, I have been thinking about um, developing, as I said, those ideas around maternity, but also non-maternity. I think there's a lot being written about motherhood, and I think a lot of that centres on this idea that um, women in their 30s have to answer that question, do you want children or do you not want children? And actually, I think there's a much longer story to be written about how we, you answer that question with a yes, yes, I do want children. That is not the end, actually. That's just the beginning. And uh, how you can go in so many different directions from that yes. Um, and, and so that, that is a narrative I would like to follow. Mm. Not just mine, but other people's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was what I found when I was reading that section that, you know, I was, I was thinking that it was, it was going to turn out like a happy ending. And so, and, I, and then I realised what, what, what kind of, that, what's that inside me that thinks that that's what we need? And it was so much more powerful as, as, a, as a woman in her mid-30s that hasn't got kids, doesn't really know what she, whether she wants kids, not in a position to have them. Like, you know, it's, um, it's just an interesting, different thing to read. And it's not what we often hear or see. No, and you know there was. I spent quite a lot of time looking around, thinking, where are the couples in their fifties who are have been together for a very long time, and you know who chose not to have children, who didn't have children, because you never know the stories, the private stories behind, um, you know, within a relationship, and you know what did that partnership look like? Because part of me was like, well, where are where are the models for doing something different? And for me, the journey of the baby years essay, and actually it was arrived at kind of simultaneously with writing it, was about saying there is a happy ending. I get to I get to have this great life, and I am really lucky in, in this amazing partnership that I have. And okay, we didn't get to be parents, but there are lots of ways of you know having children in your life. I have an amazing nephew, um, and uh, friends have great kids, and we hang out with them. And he's a godfather to his best friend's son. And you know, there's and and also there's, you know this is the whisper it. You get to do stuff if you don't have kids. You get to like you know leave the house in ten under ten minutes, and you know drink a hot cup of tea from beginning to end, and go on holiday and read books and write books, and 
we're both writers and there has to be a recognition I think that having kids not having kids means not having to make certain sacrifices and I'm owning that yeah you oh, should I, you should I think owning it is just such an important part of what you're writing and yeah we're so grateful for you setting that example for people everywhere wonderful thank you so thank much you that was yeah. um yeah really lovely and insightful and yeah excellent thank you so much we um you also have brilliant eyebrows yeah oh <laughs> i've been just Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the hyphen riffraff.